Good morning and welcome to Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God, His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO. Christ for you, anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Sharper Iron is underwritten by the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. On this Wednesday, August 19th, we are studying Ruth chapter 3, verses 1 through 18. The Lord has shined a glimmer of hope into the seemingly hopeless situation for Naomi and Ruth. Boaz, the kinsman redeemer for their family, has taken notice of Ruth. He has shown generosity toward her that has gone above and beyond what God's law requires. Now Naomi and Ruth act upon the hope that the Lord has given them. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's Word today, we have with us regular guest, Pastor Zelwyn Heidi. Pastor Heidi serves as the pastor at St. Peter Lutheran Church in Hanover, North Dakota, and Zion Lutheran Church in New Salem, North Dakota. He's also one of the hosts of the podcast, A Word Fitly Spoken. Pastor Heidi, welcome back to Sharper Iron. Glad as always to be with you. As we get started this morning, Pastor Heidi, just remind us where we are here in the book of Ruth. Give us a a brief recap, the context that we need to know going into chapter 3. Well, chapter 3 is kind of, I mean, I suppose you could say it's building up towards the climax of the book. I mean, you could argue that that's more in chapter 4. But what we see here is a decisive moment in the book because we've met Um, Naomi and Ruth, you know, in chapter one, and we've met their plight. And we've also seen that, like you said, the kindness of Boaz in chapter two. But now in this moment, um, they're going to act on on the hope that, as, as you put it, they're going to try to seize and find a comfort, a resting place, as Naomi puts it, for Ruth so that she will have a future. Because we have to remember that apart from having like a, you know, some kind of support, especially having a husband or sons, they really have no future in this, in this historical time period. They need to find some sort of hope in the midst of uncertainty, right? They see Boaz then as the source of that hope. We talked a little bit about that yesterday in the appearance of this Redeemer. There is hope, and there's a lot of weighted terms there, I know, and, and I think that's good that we would see in this a picture of the hope that we have in our Redeemer, Christ. And we'll talk more about that word again today as we get into chapter 3. Pastor Heidi, is, is just before we get into the text, then just to maybe introduce this a little bit more, this idea of acting on hope. How, how does that work? Because, I mean, we talk about living by faith, and right. this idea of trust, and that this is in God's hands, and yet we see Naomi and Ruth, and we know this in our own lives as Christians, we we act on it, we we do something. How do those two things go together? The I mean, the hope and the action, the faith and the life, maybe we could put it that way too. Yeah, and I think this is something that we'll get into a little bit more um, as we talk about the text itself, but uh, it's not a contradiction to say that, you know, we act on the hope which we have in the Lord. Because perhaps the Lord is using us as the way of bringing about the very thing that we are hoping for. You know, he is powerful in what he is able to do. He is, you know, in control of all things. And he works through means, as we often say. And sometimes the very means by which we pray, you know, the very means that he uses to carry out something that we pray for might actually be our own actions. So we say, Lord, help me, and then, you know, help me to do this as I go forward. So, no, there, there really isn't a contrast between the two. There's only a contrast when you think of faith as being something, you know, static and kind of like uh, the, the last thing that you go to when you're, you're feeling hopeless. Like, oh, now I'm, I'll be faithful towards God because, you know, I have no other help. No, that's, that's not really the biblical picture. Right. The... And the the key here is that it is the promise of the Lord that they are acting upon. And so we'll we'll talk more about this, but but just to to put it out there right now, that they know that Boaz is their kinsman redeemer. They know what the kinsman redeemer is supposed to do according to the Lord's word. And so what do they do? They, They go with that word of the Lord, and they act in hope toward the Lord and his word. And so, yeah, they go together. I mean, faith and works go together. Faith and life go together. What to go back to James, what good is that faith if it doesn't show itself in the works, that evidence? This is simply what you do with a promise. You believe it, and, and in believing it, you act upon it. This isn't, it, 
we don't have to play so dogmatic with it, I suppose. We can simply just let the two go together. And I think this text is going to allow us to see how it fits together rather nicely. Any more introductory comments on the book of Ruth as a whole or this chapter before we get started? No, I think that I think we can get into it. All right. So Ruth chapter three, beginning at verse one. Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, should I not seek rest for you, that it may be well with you? Is not Boaz our relative, with whose young women you were? See, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Wash, therefore, and anoint yourself, and put on your cloak, and go down to the threshing floor. But do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. But when he lies down, observe the place where he lies. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. And she replied, all that you say, I will do. Okay, we'll pause there. This is the opening scene. This is where we start to see Naomi and Ruth, in accordance with her, act on the hope that they have. Let's talk a little about what Naomi says to Ruth first. She calls her my daughter. She says, should I not seek rest for you, that it may be well for you? What is what is she trying to give to Ruth with this rest? Uh, it's kind of like what I alluded to a little, little bit earlier. Uh, the rest that uh, Ruth needs is a secure future. Uh, as she is right now as a widow and dwelling in an a, as a, in the land as a sojourner, she really has no any. She has no security. She has no financial stability. She has virtually nothing. The only thing that she has to go on is what Naomi has given to her, as well as what she has received from Boaz. And so, what Naomi is suggesting here is saying, "Well, but this this man Boaz, you know, he's shown an interest in you, and uh, I want to make sure that you have a future because if nothing else, I'm old. I'm not going to be around for very much longer." You know, and I want you as my daughter-in-law to have a future. Therefore, you know, let's try to, you know, go seek marriage with this man. Because having a husband then, uh, she will have a future. Right? Right. So what exactly, before we talk more theology, some of those things that we were bringing up already, let's just make sure we understand what Naomi is telling Ruth to do. You you mm-hmm. mentioned this is a, a marriage proposal in essence. What is it that Naomi wants Ruth to do? What are the significance of these actions that she's giving to Ruth? Yeah, and I suppose that's kind of the question here, isn't it? Because <laughs> uh, Naomi proposes to Ruth a kind of, I don't know how you want to put it. She wants, she's basically doing something that's going to almost force Boaz's hand, you know, really put the question to him very directly by getting to him in a situation where they would be alone and uh, and she would have his full attention. And so by, you know, cleaning herself up and going down and, uh, you know, uncovering his feet, as it were, she's going to create a situation when they can be entirely alone and not out in public. Now, I don't think that this is, you know, something sinister. Uh, this is basically just saying, you know, putting her hope in this proposal itself and basically making it so that they can have this conversation in private. Because, you know, when else would it be more private than the middle of the night, right? Sure, this is certainly a private setting. And I think that private setting in the middle of the night is what has led some to question exactly what is happening here. We've seen both Ruth and Boaz show themselves to be virtuous, upstanding, faithful people by and large, And here you've got Naomi arranging a middle-of-the-night meeting between a man and a woman who are unmarried. And I mean, if I think about my own sons, I would certainly encourage them not to find themselves alone with an unmarried woman in the middle of the night. Sure. So is there there any sort of impropriety going on here, or, or is that reading too much into the narrative? I really don't see this as a case of impropriety. I see this as a very uh, direct and very forceful way of trying to secure her future. Um, yes, I know there is that that question of like, you know, oh, this seems a little dirty. You know, what is she doing here exactly? But I, don't, I think that's reading too much into it. Because really all she has done is create a situation in which he's guaranteed to wake up, you know. Because when by uncovering his feet, for example, as we'll see a little bit later, um, he'll be cold. And of course, when you're cold in the middle of the night, you'll wake up and then you can have this conversation. You know, 
I, I, I really do see it as this much more just generally forceful way of trying to seize on this opportunity rather than any kind of, you know, immoral sort of actions. I, I agree with you. I think a, a couple of thoughts on that. One is that when we when we start to look for that impropriety, not that it's never there in the text of the scriptures, but sometimes that ends up revealing more about our own presuppositions that we're bringing with us to the text rather than what the text is actually saying. Sure. And then the second thing is that just a, and this is a, well, I, we spoiled it yesterday on, with chapter two. So spoiler alert, Boaz and Ruth are going to get married by the end of this book. And <laughs> and it does say in Ruth chapter 413 that after Boaz, oh, this is what it says, Boaz took Ruth, she became his wife, he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. So by the end of this book, the way that their marriage is laid out there is the order that the Lord lays down. They get married, they have children, which would seem to, I mean, in, in my mind, that verse helps to interpret this as not anything improper going on, perhaps a, a bit unusual, and it's certainly, as you said, a bold move. But in terms of their own personal virtue, we don't need to read this and call that into question, right? Right. Well, and I think maybe maybe just to really highlight uh, the the difference here with, you know, to really emphasize Ruth's virtue, it's worth comparing her to, uh, you know, some other women who have also taken very bold measures to try to secure their future, but did so in sinful ways. Um, the very fact that Ruth, for example, is a Moabite will recall that uh, the Moabites come from the daughters of Lot, and they also, in their insecurity, you know, trapped in the mountains after the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah in the book of Genesis, uh, said, you know, we need to take our future into our hands, but then did so in an extremely sinful way. Okay, so they did it the wrong way, even though they went about, uh, you know, trying to secure their future boldly. You also think of Tamar, for example, and the, in the matter with Judah and tricking him into basically giving her a son. You know, that's how one of the ancestors of Christ is actually conceived. But it was done in sin, and it shows the way not to go about doing this. Whereas Ruth, for example, all she has done is basically, you know, boldly gone forward and, uh, you know, basically created a situation where Boaz is going to wake up, but then that's the end of it. There's no impropriety. There's no sin. You know, she's just simply there. So I think what we see here is, is a contrast between you know, when we really do try to take things into our own hands, but do so in ways apart from the Lord. And Ruth, on the other hand, who does so fully trusting in the Lord and trusting in his promises and yet going about it in this bold way. Yeah, the, the boldness is there. The question is whether or not it's a sinful boldness. And I do think those other examples, particularly the example of Lot's daughter, which is where the Moabite people come from, and Ruth being a Moabitess, that's a, a very important one to look at, simply because you see that great contrast in the way that the Moabites came about as a people. It traces itself back to this sinful, bold action taken by the daughter of Lot. Here you've got one of the descendants who, in contrast to that beginning, now makes a faithful move. And, and instead of acting boldly in sin, she acts boldly in faithfulness and and is trying to get Boaz's attention. Another example came to mind, which is is slightly different, but it, it is similar, where you have Rebecca, the mother of Jacob and Esau, in the securing of the blessing or the yeah, the blessing for Jacob, her favored son, the trickery that's involved. So there there's there's num a number of examples in the scriptures where people will take things into their own hands. They do so in a faithless way, and yet we see the Lord's faithfulness through it all. Here we're seeing a couple of women, Naomi and Ruth, who are taking things into their own hands, but doing so in a faithful way. And I think that gets us back toward what we started to talk about at the beginning, and we talked about a little bit more. So this matter of, of taking things into your own hands. Uh, here's, here's what I was thinking as, as you were talking about it, Pastor Heidi. In the Table of Duties— in the small catechism, one of that one of those neglected parts of the small catechism, in my opinion, but it's there. The table of duties, the second to last one is two widows, and there Luther puts before us First Timothy five verses five through six. This was this is what that text says: the widow who is really in need and left all alone, 
puts her hope in God and continues night and day to pray and to ask God for help. But the widow who lives for pleasure is dead even while she lives. But that first sentence that Paul writes there, the widow who's in need and left alone, what's she to do? She's to put her hope in God and to pray day and night asking God for help. Well, Naomi and Ruth here seem to do a bit more than that. So this helps us, I think, dig a little bit deeper into this, Pastor Heidi. How do we how do we hold these things together? Well, I think you hold it together by recognizing that uh, the, the widow who puts her hope in the Lord, as Naomi and Ruth have done, are going to put their hope that he's going to you know, take care of them in everything. Now, in the time of the church, by the time that Paul is writing, you know, those widows could find their support and their help in the church itself. You know, that uh, the, they would take up a collection for the widows and the orphans and give them that kind of financial security, which they so desperately needed. So would they find the security in having a husband in the time of the New Testament? Maybe, maybe not. You know, you, you at least have other avenues. But here at this point in time, she's putting her trust in the Lord, knowing that he's going to provide for her. And in this case, providing for her means, you know, finding her a husband so that she's able to have some sort of security, so that she's able to continue on and to to glorify the Lord and what she's doing. So I really don't think that the two are in contrast with each other. We just have to understand that, you know, trusting in the Lord will mean that he's going to take care of you in every sense of that, in that, of that word. I think it also helps to, when we understand that the Lord generally, he doesn't always, and he certainly doesn't have to, but in general, he has promised to work through means. Right. He doesn't work immediately where he simply, the, the sort of classic example that I sometimes use in youth confirmation is when we're talking about daily bread with the fourth petition, I'll ask the confirmands, does that mean that you're asking God for every day a loaf of bread to just sort of appear on your table? Well, and they all kind of laugh at me. No, that's, that's not what it means. How does God provide daily bread? He provides daily bread by giving me the ability to work, by, by giving me the means necessary through which he gives that, those needs for this life. So is that God providing it? Yes, he's doing it through means. And when we reject those means, then we actually end up rejecting him as the one who's making use of those means. And so there, there isn't a, any sort of conflict here when we understand that God generally works through means, and those means, well, he lays that out in his word. So he's talked about the goodness of husbands supporting their wives in his word. So for Ruth and Naomi to seek a husband for Ruth in order to provide for her, that's simply listening to what the Lord has said is good and seeking that out. It's not somehow putting him to the test or somehow failing to trust in him. In fact, we might even say to not seek out those means, that would be putting the Lord to, t- to the test. What do you think? Yeah, I, and I mean, if you apply that back to the question, you know, we compared Ruth to, you know, those other women, for example, like her ancestress, uh, the daughter of Lot, she did not trust the Lord. And so, you know, because she saw the isolation, she figured that there was, you know, no one else around. So she took matters into her own hands, thinking that she would provide for herself. Okay. And and same with Tamar, you know, in tricking Judah. I mean, but the, the point being is that Ruth doesn't do that. Naomi and Ruth are trusting in the Lord and they are seeking for the means he has provided. And they're waiting for God to take care of it, you know. They, they're hoping that Boaz will accept the marriage proposal, but as and and Boaz himself, you know, wants to do it, but he's still, you know, a little bit unsure because of uh, complications that we'll see a little bit later in this text. But the point is, is that if the Lord wants this to happen, it will happen, and that's what Ruth and Naomi trust in. They're not trying to force God, so to speak. They're just saying, Lord, we're going to take this opportunity that you have provided, and if you want to make it happen then it'll happen. How do we how do we take this conversation Pastor Heidi about the way that our prayers and then subsequent actions that we might take? How do we take that and use that in our lives as Christians today? Have any thoughts, examples on that? Yeah, I mean, because you know, we we pray for things like our daily bread. We pray that God will help us in our whatever our circumstances may be. And, you know, do we take that to mean 
that this is, you know, I have no other help and I'm kind of on my last straw. And so God, you know, I'm putting it in your hands because you can do something about it. I think, unfortunately, that's a way we, we too often approach prayer as kind of a last resort for things. And when we approach prayer in that way, and then when God doesn't answer it on our timetable, we become very discouraged, you know, thinking that God doesn't care, or that God doesn't want to do anything about it. But what the book of Ruth is teaching us, I think, is that when we pray for things, when we call on God and ask him to keep his promises, it's perfectly fine then to you know, act on things you know, in, in the, the hope that God will give them to us, but not to be disappointed if he chooses not to. It really is just a case of, Lord, this is in your hands. You will make it succeed or you will not make it succeed according to your will, you know, but help me regardless, right? I think that, that second guessing that sometimes happens when we, when we don't get what we wanted all along, perhaps, is, is a sign that we're, we're not thinking of prayer in this right way, where we're, we're putting it in the Lord's hands truly in, in the right sense. And you know, I think sometimes we'll, we'll th- we have a decision to make, perhaps, uh, and, and then we'll, we'll pick one way and say, Lord bless it, and then it doesn't turn out the right way. And, and we think that somehow maybe that means we made the, the wrong decision or that we didn't rightly follow God's will in the first place. And that's that's not necessarily the case, is it? I, I mean, at least I, I don't think so. That that rather in, instead we're we're sort of I think that might be a sign that we're using prayer almost as that last resort, sort of trying to almost throw a, a dart at a dartboard and hope we hit the target rather than simply trusting the Lord that he's directing events for our good according to his good and gracious will, no matter what the outcome comes out after we've made a decision. Right. And I mean, and you also think of James, for example. I mean, we keep coming back to James. It's a great book. (laughs) But, um, you know, we shouldn't say I'm going to do this and that tomorrow because we don't know if we're going to have it tomorrow. You know, this what we need to do is we need to say as the Lord wills in everything. We will make it tomorrow as the Lord wills. We will go here tomorrow as the Lord wills. You know, we will do this as the Lord wills. If he, if he wills that we are not going to do this, you know, if he puts something in our way, you know, praise be to God, that was his choice. Like, you know, Paul wanting to go to certain parts of the, of the, the Mediterranean and God telling him no, that he couldn't go there. He had to go somewhere else. That didn't mean that, you know, Paul was going to just sulk and say, oh, well, I guess I'm a failure. No, he just simply said, you know, the Holy Spirit prevented me. He didn't want me to go this way. But then he was showed me the way that he wanted me to go, you know, with the call to like Macedonia and stuff like that. So, I mean, the point being that the Lord is the one who directs our steps. He is the one who gives us all good things. And so to trust in him and to say, as the Lord wills in everything is not defeatism. It's not just kind of giving up. It really is just saying, Lord, you know what's best for me. Take you can t- you're going to take care of me no matter what. A couple weeks ago, in the prayers of the church that are put out by the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod, it's called "Let Us Pray." I don't know if you use them there in North Dakota, Pastor Heidi, but sometimes it, it, it struck my it struck my attention as praying them in in church. The very last petition went like this. It said, Father, we ask you to grant us all things needful and to keep from us all things harmful to us and to our salvation, for we trust your wisdom and your love. Teach us to pray without fear, your will be done. And that last sentence in particular, teach us to pray without fear, your will be done, really struck me as as I was praying it in church that Sunday, that I think sometimes we do pray your will be done with fear, because we well, God's will may not match up with mine and I don't know if I'm going to like that or not, or that may not be good for me. Rather, we can pray your will be done without fear, knowing that it is his good will. It is his gracious will. And I, I do think that you see Ruth and Naomi acting with that attitude here. They are praying without fear, your will be done. They're making this bold move knowing that the Lord's will is good and gracious, and and come what may, this is the way that they're trusting in the Lord for provision. Pastor Hyde, we got about a, a minute left on this side of the break to wrap this conversation up. Yeah, and I would just, you know, emphasize too, you have like Paul, for example, in the midst of a shipwreck, and yet he doesn't lose hope. 
you have, you know, all these various saints who are, you know, caught in these very terrible situations, and yet they are still confident. Um, the only reason, the only way that that's possible, so to speak, is through that trust in the Lord, that even if it is his will that we suffer for his name or suffer on, you know, on his behalf, we know that it is still good for us and that we can still bear that good witness, even in the things which we suffer. You're listening to Sharper Iron here on KFUO. Going to take a short break, but we will be right back. Please stick around. Since 1978, Lutheran Church Extension Fund has had the humble privilege of supporting Lutheran Church Missouri Synod Ministries and her workers. Thanks to faithful investors, LCEF has provided thousands of church workers, congregations, schools, and organizations with the low-cost loans and resources they need to reach more people with the saving name of Christ. To learn more, visit lcef.org or call 800-843-5233, 800-843-5233. Welcome back to Sharper Iron. It is Wednesday, August 19th, and we are studying Ruth chapter 3, verses 1 through 18. We've got Pastor Zelwyn Heidi with us. He serves at St. Peter Lutheran Church in Hanover, North Dakota, and Zion Lutheran Church in New Salem, North Dakota. He's also one of the hosts of the podcast, A Word Fitly Spoken. Pastor Heidi, prior to the break, we looked at the first five verses of Ruth chapter 3. We see how Naomi and Ruth together act in boldness, but doing so in the confidence that the Lord will keep his promises there, praying without fear, your will be done. We we do continue to see Naomi's desire to take care of her daughter-in-law, and we see Ruth's continuing faithfulness to her mother-in-law. And so let's keep reading here in Ruth chapter 3. We are now in verse 6. Ruth has just told Naomi that she's going to do what she says. So she, Ruth, went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. Then she came softly and uncovered his feet and lay down. At midnight, the man was startled and turned over, and behold, a woman lay at his feet. He said, Who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. And he said, May you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first, in that you have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask. And all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. And now it is true that I am a redeemer, yet there is a redeemer nearer than I. Remain tonight and in the morning. If he will redeem you, good, let him do it. But if he is not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Lie down until the morning. Now, we'll pause there, this, this interaction here between Ruth and Boaz. So, Pastor Heidi, Ruth's going to do everything that Naomi has told her to do. She goes to his field, to his threshing floor. Boaz has eaten and drunk. His heart is merry. He goes to lie down. Is he? And, and again, just to some of these questions that may come up, is has he had too much to drink at this time? What's what's the scene that we see here with Boaz? I don't think he's drunk by any means. I think this is just a case of he's been working hard all day because, you know, this is the time of the harvest. He's got a lot of work to do. And so now he's had his evening supper and he's just content. I mean, anyone who's worked a hard, you know, hard day of labor and then had their evening meal knows this sensation of you know, contentness, this sensation of, you know, having a, a good day's work in, and now just the, 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 the comfort which comes from a good meal at the end of that. So I think this is just a case of he's just, he's just happy and relaxed. I don't think he's drunk at all. All right. So again, no need to read any impropriety into the text. Let's simply let the, the text speak what it says. And I think you're right. If, if you've known a hard day's work, and the joy of a refreshing meal and then going to sleep after that, that fits very perfectly with what's written. So this is where Ruth finds Boaz. He's lying down. She does what her mother-in-law has told her to do, and his feet are uncovered. She lays down. It's about midnight when that coldness on his feet hits him. He wakes up. He sees that it's a woman, but he can't see who it is. Then Ruth speaks. 
She says, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. Two things I think we need to talk about here, Pastor Heidi. What does it mean when she asks, spread your wings over your servant? And then we'll pick up the, the redeemer after that. Sure. Uh, spread, spreading your wings here, I think, is just a metaphor that she's using, you know, kind of as a bird you know, puts its wings over its young. You know, you have that image of Jesus in the New Testament saying, like, as a, as a hen gathers her brood, you know, putting her wings over it. This kind of protection, this kind of um, comfort, this kind of security that she wants Boaz to provide for her. And it really is in this sense, as Boaz will recognize, a marriage proposal which is why he answers the way that he does. But we'll get to that in a little bit. So, I think there, there's also a bit of an echo here with this spread your wings over your servant. Back in chapter 2, Boaz recognizes that Ruth is one who has come to find refuge under the wings of the Lord. You get very similar language there. And so uh, perhaps a bit of a play on words, a reminder of what Boaz has said about her. Here we see Ruth, again, finding that protection under the Lord, because now she's finding it under his people. She has joined herself to Naomi, to the people of Naomi, and to the God of Naomi. And this is all a part of that. And as you said, it is also, it's pretty well, will you marry me? Please marry me. Then she gives the reason, and this I think will will be a little bit bigger of a conversation. We talked a little bit about it yesterday. She says, you are a redeemer. Sometimes you'll hear it translated kinsman redeemer. Mm -hmm. What does this mean, Pastor Heidi? <laughs> well, how much time do we have? <laughs> 20 minutes. <laughs> a kins, the, the concept of a kinsman redeemer has to do with what God has set up within uh, his Old Testament law. Because one of the things that God had always intended for his people during the time you know, of the Old Testament before the days of Christ was that their house would always exist within Israel. Um, they didn't ever want to have a, you know, a house or a family die out from within the, the land. And so you have, for example, the question of like Zelophehad and his, you know, what, four or five daughters, you know, what do we do in a situation like this? And the Lord deals with this question because it means something to him, you know. But the, the point is, is that to redeem in this way is to make sure that this name continues on that this name in Israel does not die out, but goes on so that they have a part in the inheritance of Israel. Um, so it really is a question of, we don't want this you know, family to die out. And in this case, you know, redeem me, you know, basically do what you're supposed to do to, to raise up this family so that it is remembered within Israel, right? How did how did that process usually work itself out that one of these redeemers would come and prevent a family name from being wiped out? Well, you have uh, the examples of like leveret marriages where a brother would marry his dead brother's wife and raise up children. In fact, when we were dealing with the whole issue of Tamar earlier, that was the very question that was going on there, you know, because the the sons of Judah had died. And that 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 name need to be needed to be perpetuated, um, but what so basically what's happening is here is that through this marriage, the name of the of of Ruth's dead husband would continue in Israel, um, and so because they are closely related to one another, we're not told exactly you know how close, but you know they're part of the same family group so to speak. Uh, Boaz redeeming Ruth would make sure that that name is perpetuated by raising up children uh, to in the name of her dead husband. Mm-hmm. And the idea of redemption also carried it with it a, a process of buying. There's usually right. a transaction of some kind, and not only a marriage, but a transaction. And we'll see this in the book of Ruth in, in the next chapter, but there's also, so buying and selling is a, or, or Pay, paying a debt maybe is a is part of the the theme of redemption. I think from what what you're saying so far, also Pastor Heidi, another picture that we have in redemption is the idea of, of resurrection or, or keeping someone away from death, out of death. Sure. And all of this, I think, is I mean, hopefully, you know, the word redeemer. We can't help but hear that today and think of our Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, so all of this is is pointing us forward. It's providing a picture of what Jesus is going to do for us or has done for us, I should say. 
Well, and the 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 financial end of it also is is something that's kind of closely connected with that because remember the inheritance within Israel is always a question of having a possession within the land. Okay, you think of like the book of Joshua, which I think you've done before, um, and the the whole second half of that book talking about you know which tribe is going to live where and what their inheritance looks like. Um, for a family to die out means that their portion in this inheritance, this physical land inheritance, would also be lost at the same time. And so part of marrying and raising up children is also making sure that that land is also staying within the family because it's not supposed to go from one tribe to another. Otherwise, you might have one tribe which will wipe out another one entirely, which is not what God wants to happen. He wants to make sure that they always have a name within Israel. Okay. And I think the way that we can connect that to Jesus and the way that we use the idea of redemption and of buying back is that we have to remember that Jesus himself is our inheritance as well as our bridegroom. So he is both, you know, of what of what Boaz is doing here, marrying Ruth and also buying the land to perpetuate the name. But our name is in Jesus. You know, our inheritance is in Jesus and our marriage as the bride of Christ is in, you know, the, the very Lamb of God who has given himself for us. So mm-hmm. I think the very idea of redemption carries over very nicely into the New Testament. Yeah, the and particularly with both of those motifs, that the name not being lost, the idea of inheritance, the idea of marriage that's all connected, and the way that Jesus fulfills all of this, I mean, all of that, I think, ties in very nicely to baptism. How is it that my name is not lost? Well, it's because I've got the name of God placed upon me in baptism. And and think about the way that Paul talks about uh, baptismal imagery when he's talking about the relationship between Christ and the church as a marriage, that, that Christ loved the church by giving himself for her and by, by washing her with water and the word. And so these gifts of Christ are given to us now in holy baptism, this matter of our name not being lost, and this matter of, of belonging to Christ as his bride as a part of the church. This comes to us through the blessing of, of water and the word. Now, Pastor Heidi, so this is Ruth's request. Spread your wings, mm-hmm. you're my redeemer. He recognizes it. This is This is the... This is the the riskiest moment, I suppose you might say, for Ruth and Naomi, right there. You're talking about how right. where does it where does the climax come? Probably, I think the climax of the book does come in chapter four. But in terms of the of Ruth and Naomi putting themselves out there and placing themselves into risk, it happens right there, where where Ruth has said, "Please do this for me." What's he going to say? <laughs> yeah. So, w- what does he say, Pastor Heidi? Uh, he basically says yes. Uh, you know, he's going to qualify it, of course, and we'll talk about that in a minute. But he says, you've done me a great kindness because, well, apparently Boaz is not a young man. You know, he's a little bit old. He's little, he's put on some years and he has this young woman who's you know proposing marriage to him, which is why he says, you've made this last kindness greater than the first because you haven't gone after men your own age. You've gone after me. <laughs> hmm. Um And so, but it is a kindness that she is showing to him. And so he says, you know, may the Lord bless you for this. Now, um, he, the only reason I say that he says yes, but is because he recognizes that there's a potential snag here, right? There is a kinsman redeemer who is closer in relation to Ruth than he is. Now, we're not told how close, you know, we're not told how far apart Boaz and Ruth are in terms of their clan, you know, in terms of their family group. But we are told that there is someone who is closer. So Boaz basically says, I will do this, provided that this other kinsman redeemer, the one who has a stronger claim, um, doesn't want to do it. In fact, he even takes an oath. He says in in verse uh, 13, you know, as the Lord lives, which is an oath, you know, I swear I will do this. So, I mean, he's deadly serious about this, you know, this proposal. And he says, if it doesn't work out, then, you know, then the Lord, that's what the Lord wants to do, but I will do it provided nothing else gets in the way. So when we hear Boaz give this exception, he says, I will do it, but there's a Mm -hmm. closer kinsman redeemer. Mm -hmm. It's not like he's failing to take care of Ruth though. 
in, in right. either case, he's still looking out for her well-being and Naomi's as well. Right. Right. Exactly. Because he's basically saying, if this if this closer redeemer wants to to marry you, you're still being taken care of and you'll still have a future. It just might not be me. So we need to deal with that particular situation first to see what the Lord wants to do with it. Um, and so that's why he says, yes, but. But that's not a, that's again, that's not a maybe. It really is a firm yes that he's giving to her. He just has to make sure that this other kinsman redeemer doesn't want to, you know, claim that right for himself. Because again, the whole point of the redeemer is to keep it within the family as closely as possible and to not allow that to spread out. Uh, you see Boaz's character come through, and I, this is consistent with who we have seen him to be so far. One of the, I mean, I, is this, yeah, the very first words that we hear him speak in the book are, the Lord be with you. I mean, so he he has shown himself to be a generous man, a pious Israelite, a faithful man throughout the book, and he continues that here. First of all, being willing to care for these widows, as the Lord would command him, and, and being willing to fulfill his duty as kinsman redeemer, but also recognizing the larger picture of the Lord's law, that it's not just about him, but there's there's more people involved, and he's he's going to be faithful. So you, you continue to see that picture of, of Boaz. I, I think what the matter of the kindness that Ruth has shown to him, certainly his own age, you know, he's an older man apparently, and and she's not chasing after younger men, but also I think that the kindness that she's showing also deals with the fact that she too is placing herself under the authority, or, or maybe as we were saying before the break, under the trust of the Lord, that she's willing to follow after what the Lord would give to her and seek after that rather than just whatever her own heart happens to desire some some young buck whether he's poor or rich and so well i mean i think i think that's part of the kindness sure. too is it's not just boaz saying hey i'm old you're young thanks for thinking of me but there's also this element of of faithfulness toward the lord that is evident here i think as well no i i think that's an excellent point um because you know she she has seen the kindnesses that Boaz has shown her, and she really is trusting in what the Lord is going to provide, even if you know it is maybe a little bit older than her her flesh might have liked, if you want to put it that way. Um, she is going to trust that this is what God has provided, and she will be satisfied with it. Now, again, all of this is taking place about midnight. Let's keep in mind. So mm-hmm. just so, so we remember the scene, they're at Boaz's threshing floor, Ruth has followed her mother-in-law's instructions, and she's gone and uncovered his feet, lied down there. Boaz and she have had this conversation. It's midnight. Boaz says, lie down until the morning. So let's see how this text concludes here in chapter 3. It's going to be a bit of a cliffhanger today, Pastor Heidi. You have to listen tomorrow to find out how it ends. That'll work. Ruth chapter 3, verse 14. So she, Ruth, lay at his, Boaz's feet, until the morning, but arose before one could recognize another. And he said, let it not be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. And he said, bring the garment you are wearing and hold it out. So she held it and he measured out six measures of barley and put it on her. Then she went into the city. And when she came to her mother-in-law, she, she said, how did you fare, my daughter? Then she told her all that the man had done for her, saying, these six measures of barley he gave to me. For he said to me, you must not go back empty handed to your mother-in-law. She replied, wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out, for the man will not rest, but will settle the matter today. And that's where chapter three ends. So, Pastor Heidi, again, I know we've talked about this before, but let's just, I mean, I think this is, in terms of impropriety in this text, you see both Boaz and Ruth very concerned with not giving any impression of impropriety here in the way that they handle it, it seems. And again, I think this is another one of those spots where, we're right to read the text simply as it stands and not read anything into it. Just make sure we, you know, what's the scene here as Boaz and Ruth part ways in the morning? Well, I mean, she leaves very early in the morning, again, not to give even the appearance of offense. And also, I think when Boaz says, let it, you know, let it not be known that she was even here, that was not a case of like, you know, we did something that was wrong. It was, it's more a case of we don't want to give the appearance of evil. We also don't want it to make it seem like we're somehow scheming to get this inheritance. You know, we, we, what Boaz is doing is he's protecting 
the the reputation of Ruth here. He's also protecting his own reputation, and he is making sure that everything is going to work out in the best possible way. Again, not that anything wrong has been done here. It's just a case of, you know, you don't want to give the appearance of something have been, you know, having gone wrong. You know, right, what would it right. look like? <laughs> sure. No, exactly. And, and it's not that they're covering themselves up because they had done something wrong. They're, they're simply protecting their own reputation so that no one would say that they've done anything wrong because they haven't. They have not. Right. And, and so this is the way they part ways. Boaz, once again, is is very generous with Ruth and Naomi yet again. We, we saw this in chapter two, and he repeats it here in chapter three, where he he gives her more to eat, which is is quite something, I think, especially given our conversation earlier about the yes, but answer that he gives to her, that even as he recognizes that this other kinsman redeemer may be the one who wants to marry Ruth and will be the one to fulfill his duty, still that doesn't stop Boaz from being generous and giving to her and to Naomi. He continues that generosity, even knowing that he may not see any return on his investment, that that he may not be the one to marry her. Still, he cares for her. And and so, I mean, that I think that really just ties that picture up nicely. The, the one loose end that's left here in terms of this chapter, of course, is that Ruth has to go back home. And, and I think, you know, Pastor Heidi, the, the way that I, I picture this is that Naomi has probably not slept much <laughs> this whole night. You know, she, she's, she's waiting for Ruth to come back, you know, hoping to find out what's, what's happened. Um, so, so take us into this final interaction between Naomi and Ruth as the chapter closes. Yeah, actually, I think it's kind of interesting here. The, the ESV translates this here as, how did you fare? But anyone who's ever read the old King James will know that the question that Naomi asks here is, who are you, my daughter? And I think that that's actually kind of a, a more colorful way of, of Naomi putting the question, because it's kind of an expectant, like, a, you know, a, you know, who are you? You know, did how did it turn out kind of a thing? Are you are you Mrs. Boaz yet? <laughs> that's right. Yeah. Yeah. I, no, I think you're right. I, I think that's a, that's a, that's the nuance of the way that that question, if it is, who are you? Mm-hmm. Yeah. It, it is sort of like, yeah. Did, did he say yes? What's your last name now? It's yeah, Mrs. <laughs> Boat. We don't get the last name. So Mrs. Boat, we had a, that happened in the, in the Samson story. We have Manoa and Mrs. Manoa. So, <laughs> so are you Mrs. Boaz here? Yeah. Is, is, is what's going on. So keep, right. keep going, Pastor Heidi. Right. And so anyway, and then basically we have a quick recap, you know, Ruth tells, her everything that has happened. And then Naomi basically says, um, you know, we have to wait now to see how it's going to turn out. You know, what we've done everything that we can at this point. Um, but now we simply have to wait on the Lord. You know, we've we've done as much as we can. That's really the, the way that this chapter ends, right? Right. It it is a it is a cliffhanger. Al- although I, I do wonder about just the timing of this. Again, the conversation that happened between Ruth and Boaz was at midnight. Right. She leaves the threshing floor before somebody can recognize another person. So it's still got to be probably while it's dark, maybe just as the sun is coming up, sure. which anytime, at least in my mind, you know, you see these places in the scripture where the morning dawns. I think the Exodus is taking place when the sea comes back. It's, it happens just as the morning dawns. Psalm 46 uses that phrase about the Lord will help her when morning dawns. And of course, our Lord rises very early in the morning on the first day of the week, the, the Gospels tell us. And so I, uh, you tell me, Pastor Hyde, if you think this is going too far, but I wonder if we, if there's literally a glimmer of light, of hope here, even though it's a cliffhanger of an ending in chapter 3, that things are going to go well here for Ruth and Naomi, just given the timing of everything. No, I, I think that's a, a fair parallel to make. I mean, I don't know if I'd read every morning in the scriptures as, as right. that, but I mean, here we definitely see a change in the fortunes of Ruth and Naomi, because regardless of what happens at this point, whether she becomes Mrs. Boaz or whether she becomes Mrs. whoever this other guy is, we, we're not given his name, um, she still has a future. She still has that kind of, I think you're using the language of resurrection, you know, mm-hmm. that she is coming back from the dead. She is no longer a widow with no future. She is soon to be a wife who will have a future. And so the Lord has taken care of her no matter what happens. They simply only have to wait to see what is going to happen at this point. 
Uh, certainly not every morning in the scripture is loaded with that resurrection motif, but but I do think you know this would be an example. Is it Psalm? Yeah, Psalm thirty. Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes with the morning. And and through this night, which hasn't actually had the weeping, but the joy is coming for Ruth and Naomi. Pastor Heidi, we've got two minutes here on the morning. Help us help us wrap things up. I know it's a bit of a, a cliffhanger. We've already given spoiler, so. Help us see this text as a whole and use it to point us toward our Lord Jesus Christ. Well, I think the easiest way to do that is actually to go to the very end of this book, of the book of Ruth. I know I we we have to move on beyond this chapter because it is a cliffhanger, but that's okay. But the the point is, is that, yes, they do get married. The Lord has provided for her and has taken care of her even when she needed him the most. And then we see in the very end of the book with the, the 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 list of names that comes with it that Ruth actually becomes the one of the the ancestors of David you know that the, the Lord is going to provide for all of his people in giving them king David and of course we're going to see that all the way down through the years to where she becomes one of the ancestors of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ himself so not only has the Lord provided for Ruth and Naomi in their time of need but he is actually through her provided help for all of us in giving us a savior and giving us a the redeemer who will buy us back from our sins, make us his bride and give us an inheritance in Israel. Pastor Zelwyn Heidi serves at St. Peter Lutheran Church in Hanover, North Dakota, and also Zion Lutheran Church in New Salem, North Dakota. And he is the host of the podcast, A Word Fitly Spoken. Pastor Heidi, thanks for being our guest this morning. Help us with Ruth chapter three. Thank you. I'm your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again tomorrow.